Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you can hear from my panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star zero. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to hand the conference over to your host today, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training. Dr. Messner, please begin. Oh, thank you so much, Norma. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop. And today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And also today's program is supported by AbbVie, Bristol-Myers Squibb, a grant from Genentech, and an educational grant from Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC. And I really want to thank them for their support to this program. Now, really, because of all of this collaboration and your interest in this topic today, we really have a record number of people on this program today. We have over 435 participants on the program. So there are a lot of you. I know you can't see each other, but there are lots of you on the call. And you come from uh, mostly from the United States, from both rural, urban, and suburban areas. And we also have international participants from Canada, Japan, Netherlands, New Zealand, Saudi Arabia, Sweden, and the United Kingdom. So this is a bit of a global call as well, this topic. And our topic is participating decisions about your care. It's a very important topic. It's one that I think um, for many people is most, it's most uh, compelling in our, in our minds. It's one that we really think about a great deal. And it is really our most important, um, it's most important topic um, in terms of uh, in, in, in all of the programs that we do. Now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today. And I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Containment Cancer Centers of New York, author, researcher in oncology. And Dr. Fleischman is going to present an overview of oncology care in the, in the context of COVID-19, selecting a cancer care team and treatment facility, what to do when presented with multiple treatment options, when and how to seek a second opinion. It's really very important. Um, and also um, understanding your treatment choices and follow-up care plan and your relationship with your healthcare team. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Usual types of factors that uh, even two months ago uh, we weren't facing, but because of the, um, the, the uh, viral pandemic of COVID-19 or coronavirus, a number of the things that we do during regular times had, has had to be altered because of uh, the difficulties that our medical centers are having treating patients who are coming in with uh, viral pneumonia and difficulty breathing. So uh, we'll discuss that a little bit and then get back to the regular information that we generally discuss. Uh, we'll answer whatever questions you have to the best of our abilities. But keep in mind that once the um, this initial phase of the um, viral infection that has really spread worldwide is, has has abated, has gone away. We 
we'll go, be going back to some um, usual way of dealing with cancer, uh, with presenting treatment, um, maybe somehow altered for the future. Maybe we're learning a lot of things now that we hadn't done before. Uh, none of us can really predict that at this moment. So um, when presenting for cancer treatment, one of the things that we uh, traditionally talk about are how much benefit uh, a patient can get versus how much risk. These days, I think we have to um, look at that a little bit differently and look at the risk of cancer growth versus the risk of, um, of somebody actually getting sicker. And when any of us hears that we have cancer in ourselves, family members, or friends, it seems like it is the most urgent problem that we can think of and we need to get treatment right away. That is true for uh, some types of cancers. Um, generally speaking, and this is in broad general terms, uh, cancers uh, like leukemia and lymphoma and even maybe multimyeloma, uh, the, what they call the hematological cancers, really require immediate action in some cases, not all cases. Much of multimyeloma is uh, not an emergency. Uh, let me make that clear, um, but has happening over a long period of time. So let's look at particularly, uh, think, think of the leukemia and lymphoma um, cancers as the kind that really are, require urgent care. Many of the others, the solid tumors, can actually, um, who, who grow over long periods of time, have a different time course. And although it seems as if things are urgent, Perhaps under the current crisis when our medical centers are, are so overtaxed that may need to be delayed a little bit. None of us likes to hear that, but we have to deal with um, the situation we have at hand. So a number of states in the United States have banned elective surgeries. Most people would agree that many cancer surgeries are not elective by far. They're very important, uh, sometimes even urgent. But on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, the surgeon's offices need to decide what needs to be done and is really immediately life-saving or can alter the course of cancer if it's delayed and what surgeries can be postponed. Um, that discussion is between uh, the surgeon and the facility where the operation is to be held and the surgeon and the family. Uh, so if, if surgery is scheduled first, please speak with your surgeon. Try to call. Just keep in mind that many surgeons and many of their staff, including their assistants, have been reassigned to other parts of the hospitals to deal with the, uh, the viral uh, infections that are going around. So please um, be patient about getting callbacks. Keep trying. Uh, sooner or later, you should be able to get an answer, but it, there, there may be delays because there may be only voicemail or um, an operator taking messages. So speak with the surgeon and have the surgeon help decide how urgent the time frame is, and then speak with their um, uh, their surgical department at the hospital to see what can be scheduled. When it comes to chemotherapy, um, there are a number of other choices, some of which may be uh, appropriate for uh, each of us and some may not. So it may be the right thing to do to delay because most people acknowledge that having 
cancer can subject you to other infections and having treatment can subject you to other infections. And on a case-by-case basis, uh, the patients and family and the oncologist need to decide which is the better alternative. There are some cancers that can be treated with oral medications, and it again is up to the discussion between patient and family and the treating medical oncologist. Um, if an oral the drug can be substituted, how the patient would get that drug, how the patient would be monitored. A lot of monitoring these days is going on by telephone um, or by a video conference through telehealth systems that are connected to each facility's electronic record. Uh, there are possibilities for infusion at home. There are companies that come to the house that are able to uh, do some intravenous treatment at home, uh, and some people will be asked to go into an infusion center or cancer center with the idea that it's uh, individual patients and only one person to accompany them, and some of the facilities have had the one person stay outside. Um, that may change over time. This is a constantly moving um, model that we are working with now. When it comes to radiation therapy, Sometimes, uh, again, a discussion between patient and family and a radiation oncologist, something called hypofractionation can be done. That's a fancy word uh, that, that says a lot in one word. So when it comes to radiation, it's commonly misunderstood that if you go 30 times to get 30 treatments, you're getting more radiation exposure than if you go 10 times, but that's not necessarily so. Um, often there are reasons for the center to, um, uh, to plan the radiation over many more treatments, but that's not a financial issue. That is a clinical issue. That's how the radiation can be given best for you. But over the recent years, many of the traditional schedules have been studied and controlled clinical trials, and it may be possible for some patients in some circumstances to get the same amount of radiation in fewer visits to the radiation center. So that's a good discussion between patient family and the radiation oncologist. I think uh, more than that, um, we're, we're, we're all looking at a, a moving target here, and we'd be really uh, hard to predict the future. But as of today, that's kind of what's, what's happening in many of our centers. But as far as what happens in regular times and what will happen again in the future, when somebody is faced with an odd symptom, uh, often it's their primary care doctor, family practice doctor, general internist, or uh, women's health uh, gynecologist who would find the symptom and start the initial testing, be it laboratory testing and imaging, that could be a sonogram, that could be a regular x-ray, it could be a CAT scan, an MRI, which uses magnetism rather than uh, traditional x-ray, or even a PET scan, which looks at the functional capacity of the tissues. So your primary care doctor often is the best person who knows you the best or knows your family the best, best able to um, start this workup in place, this testing to see if it's cancer, where it is, um, and what needs to be done. So that's your first line of information. Your second may actually be your insurance company. Uh, oddly enough, uh, with all the difficulties that we have with insurance companies, sometimes that's um, a relationship that's not easy, but your insurance company can actually help when it comes to cancer treatment. Uh, many of the companies actually have 
oncology nurses who understand that this is different than other illnesses, have the information and the knowledge on their fingertips, and they are the ones to help uh, suggest to your primary care doctor or to you uh, when and where to get the best treatment. Some uh, insurance companies will call their contracted facilities centers of excellence. And indeed, some of them may be true centers of excellence, but some may be the one that has the contract with the company. So it's very hard to know which situation um, you're in. Is it just a place that the insurance company deals with, or is it actually a world-famous place, or a place that has specialists that have good track record uh, in dealing with certain types of cancer and certain, or, or even certain illnesses that arise um, either separate from the cancer or as a result of the cancer. So you're not alone. Um, there are a number of accreditation bodies in the United States, and some other countries have similar systems, uh, but it does vary country by country. But in the 50 states, United States and territories, uh, there is an organization called the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer that actually makes uh, on-the-ground visits. Somebody actually goes to the center every three years uh, and uh, runs through many, many points looking at how the facility actually looks at their own results, their own data, and well, the programs that they put in place to um, both um, keep good quality treatment going and improve uh, improve treatment. Uh, we like to think that you know the quality is good, but it always can be improved. Uh, there are a number of points that are recommended by all of our professional peers, as well as many of the uh, patient advocacy groups. These are extremely um, well tested, um, and uh, they really look at the quality of care in a much more objective way. Um, there's a second, uh, some people would say a more sophisticated accreditation body, the National Cancer Institute Comprehensive Cancer Centers, where actually uh, include many of the same points or all of the points of the American College of Surgeons Commission on Cancer. Plus, these are the facilities that are often at medical schools that do a laboratory research in cancer of the highest quality. A third group, the Association of Community Cancer Centers, also does some quality control um, between the centers to be able to say that their centers, like the other two groups, um, either meets or exceeds national guidelines and national benchmarks, what's acceptable for how cancer is treated. So you're not alone in figuring this out with your primary care doctor and help from your uh, insurance company. The information about these ratings is not secret. <laughs> it's all online. Everybody has access to them. Um, and um, I think in the information that is uh, distributed after this call, uh, you'll be able to get the websites or the phone numbers where you can actually find this out. Uh, some Many people ask if, I, if it's better to go to a larger center or a solo practice. Larger centers and solo practices each have advantages and disadvantages. Uh, solo practices may be closer to home and maybe even people in your town or in your community that you know. And that provides a personal touch that is hard to find in a larger center. However, 
Larger centers can offer things that solo practices can't. Uh, they uh, will have a staff that's able to uh, at least attempt to coordinate better between all the different uh, lab tests, imaging tests, all the subspecialists, because when, even though um, we traditionally think of cancer with sort of three treatment arms, surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy, there are a host of other things that need to be done. In the medical specialties, I don't want to leave anybody out, but cardiologists, kidney doctors, liver doctors, uh, plastic surgeons, the, the, uh, the list is actually quite long and amazing. And when people work together in the same center and hopefully on the same electronic medical record, there can be better coordination between everybody. In larger centers, that team has many non-medical specialists, specialists in cancer uh, that deal with uh, the individual patients and their families, including uh, oncology social workers, oncology nutritionists, physical therapists, and occupational therapists that have specialized training in what cancer patients need to help uh, prevent uh, from losing energy, losing body mass, as well as maintain flexibility. There are often navigators in the larger center, in the larger programs that can help guide you through the many different places and times and rules and, and help you get through the system as well as possible. In larger centers, the lab and all the radiology, all the imaging may be under one roof or it may be under one umbrella. Um, and getting um, permission from the insurance companies may be a lot easier under those circumstances to get permission to use those facilities. It's not the personal touch, uh, but it does have some advantages. Um, many facilities, many times if you see a, a physician or uh, one of these services that is reimbursed at a facility, there's a facility fee, an additional fee tacked on because all the other services are so close uh, and much more convenient. So uh, where you go, again, goes back to your primary care doctor and your insurance company, but just be aware that there are objective, much more objective, objective um, uh, agencies that actually look at the quality of the services and the level of sophistication to make sure that the treatment that you get meets or exceeds national guidelines. That is really, really important. So um, when you're faced with the needing to make a decision about treatment, there are often many variables. And the cornerstone to this is a good discussion. A good discussion with the, uh, sometimes it's the oncologist, sometimes the oncology nurse, sometimes social worker, sometimes the navigator, to make sure all your questions are answered by knowledgeable people. Um, the, there are national guidelines to follow. So if you're looking at a situation where uh, it seems that um, there is a lot of discrepancy between the opinions that you're getting, the national uh, national comprehensive uh, national uh, comprehensive cancer center network can actually um, has guidelines available. These are open to the public. There are actually two versions. One are the technical parts for the oncology staff. The other is um, available to patients in real, understandable English, uh, and anybody can look at these and see if the treatment that is being offered to them follows the guideline or doesn't follow the guideline and can 
have good discussions with their treatment team to make sure that um, when there's a deviation from the national guideline, it's for a, 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 a logical reason. These are difficult discussions. Um, sometimes you need to take a scribe with you, another family member, uh, because having the discussion, it's hard to keep notes at the same time and make sure that all of uh, the terms, the technical terms, are, um, are explained to you in a way that you understand. Sometimes this um, needs a sec uh, this situation needs a second opinion. We generally uh, uh, say that a second opinion in a different facility is better because when people tend to work together over a long period of time, they sometimes think the same way. That may be good. That, that, that may not be the most creative approach. So getting a, a second opinion outside may be helpful. Um, to do that requires often collecting lots of records most of the time in the larger centers with a unified electronic medical record. All those records are in one place, and the only things that are required in addition in most cases are the actual uh, electronic copies of the x-ray and imaging films or the actual class slides that the pathologist uses to make the cancer diagnosis and to look at the tissue after biopsy. There should be someone to help you um, gather this information. It is very common, very common, routine for people to get second opinions when it's possible in the world of cancer. Other specialties, the specialists sometimes may feel put off by that, that there's no trust, uh, but in the cancer world, that is routine every day. Um, people give second opinions all the time, as well as encourage their new patients to get second opinions if there's uh, any question about deviation from the national guidelines. So getting these reports together and making this happen is sometimes seems difficult, but oftentimes worth it. And again, discussions with your primary care doctor can actually help you sort this out. The um, uh, last topic I wanted to cover just briefly is after treatment, when you go back to your primary care doctor and your primary care provider in the community, there is now a system in place of uh, survivorship care plans where the, the treatment that you got is summarized in one document. There is generally advice about what the vigilance program will be, as well as advice for you about the things that you and your family need to do in daily life, particularly avoiding, let's say, in general, alcohol, tobacco products, proper guidance about maintaining ideal body weight, a proper diet, the tests that you will need over a long period of time to be able to maintain a healthy lifestyle, get the right amount of testing, and, um, and have that put to rest at least between the testing so you can get back to uh, a good quality of life that isn't centered around cancer and cancer treatment. Um, I'm sure there'll be questions about this. I will stop now and turn the program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was really superb and just an excellent presentation. And I know there are questions for you during the Q&A. And our next speaker uh, is Ms. Georgie Kusak. And Ms. Kusak is Director of Education and Patient Safety, Office of the Clinical Director, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, Adjunct Nurse Leader, Nursing Research and Translational Science, Clinical Center, National Institutes of Health. 
And Ms. Kusek is going to be addressing anticipating, preventing, and managing treatment and long-term side effects, key questions to ask your healthcare team, how a cancer diagnosis affects caregivers, family, partners, and loved ones, tips on advocating um, with your healthcare team, and also um, she will also be addressing um, uh, your survivorship care plan, and also um, uh, um, your relationship with your healthcare team. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Kusak. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to be on this call today. I also want to take an opportunity to welcome all the participants who are on the call. It's my pleasure to participate in the conference call with my fellow colleagues. So when we talk about how to anticipate and manage and treat and manage um, side effects and long-term side effects, I think the most important way to anticipate this is to be educated about your specific type of cancer. And so Dr. Um, Stu did a good job talking about, um, you know, kind of the diagnosis and those types of things. I think that, again, you need to seek guidance from your team, not only about treatment options, but the different side effects that you may experience. So when seeking out additional resources for yourself, make sure that you're only accessing approved websites and organizations. He gave you a lot of list of organizations, and at the end of the call, you'll receive um, you know additional resources for that. It's equal, you know, it's easy to Google something, um, which will bring up lots of different resources. But some of those resources are not always credible or accurate. So you want to make sure you're going to credible resources. Cancer Care has a list of organizations that are approved. Uh, places like the American Cancer Society, the National Cancer Institute, specific cancer organizations that may be related to your specific disease, like the uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, uh, different organizations like that are key in helping you to be able to look at that. Communication is essential in learning about your disease and your treatment options, and it involves communicating with your healthcare team to determine what are the side effects that are most common with your treatment regime, because they're going to be different for every type of treatment that you're going to take. So if you can anticipate and prevent certain side effects, that's going to be the key. Sometimes patients are afraid to discuss their side effects because they're afraid that it will affect their treatment. Uh, your team will know what to do with specific side effects. Sometimes it will mean adjusting doses of medications or even stopping medications for a period of time, but this is in the best interest of you and dealing with your condition. And so we want to make sure that we're aware of all the side effects that are happening. Sometimes your body needs time to adjust to the medications, so always communicating with your team to let them know how you're doing is going to be essential for that. If you're receiving medications that will cause things like nausea and vomiting, make sure you take the medications as prescribed by your healthcare team. You know, there are several times that I've seen over the years, sometimes patients start to feel better and then they stop taking the medications on a regular schedule and then sometimes we'll have a rebound effect with that. So we want to make sure you're taking them as prescribed. It's important to know when the side effects will be um, expected during the treatment. If you know that your white blood cell count is going to drop with a particular type of chemotherapy um, and it's going to be low around day 7 to day 10 after receiving that treatment, you're going to want to take specific precautions such as staying out of crowded places, limiting your exposure to sick individuals, taking your temperature morning and night, and reporting, you know, reporting higher temperatures as uh, the guidelines are for your particular hospital. If you're taking oral medicines, don't stop taking them without contacting your team. Also, do not adjust the doses yourself with a different symptom. Sometimes patients will call us and they'll say, well, I stopped that medicine a week ago because I was having a lot of diarrhea. 
the team wants to know and needs to know when you're taking medicines, what side effects that they're causing, and when you need to, when they may need to stop you or slow you down on those. If you're having surgery, remember that it's going to take several weeks or sometimes even a few months to regain strength and be able to do the things that were limiting you prior to surgery. If you're receiving something like radiation, fatigue is the number one side effect in most patients, and it has a cumulative effect, meaning that the later weeks may be a little bit more difficulty. So you're going to want to anticipate that and adjust your schedule so that you will know that to take frequent rest periods and to, um, you know, do exercise, but just know that you may be a little bit more fatigued with that. But you also want to plan on, again, maybe having somebody help you with things. And this is the time to really ask your caregivers to be able to assist you during those times. It's important to know what some of the long-term side effects may be so that you can prepare yourself. And as we talk about the survivorship plan, we'll talk a little bit more about that. For patients receiving some types of cancer treatment, um, some of the long-term side effects may include damage to your heart or to your lungs. We do use agents to prevent or minimize those complications, but there's a small percentage of patients who will still experience these effects. So it's important to see if this might be a possible side effect for you so that you can always inform your team if the side effect happens for you. Um, when we talk about your relationship with your healthcare team, it should be an open relationship, and you should always have open and honest communication, as I expressed earlier. Some of the key questions to talk to your healthcare team about are bringing a list of questions that you may have. So, again, number your concerns in order of importance in case you don't get to talk about everything. You just want to make sure you hit the important ones first. Make sure that your um, doctors know that you have a list so that they can set aside maybe some additional time at your appointment to go over the list. You want to write down the doctor's answers. Sometimes patients will actually even um, audio tape if they're um, if they have the permission of their physician or their um, license, you know, uh, NP or PA to be able to have uh, to do that. Because And if you don't have that option, bring somebody with you. It's important to have somebody with you because sometimes they'll hear some things that you're not able to hear because it can be a little overwhelming when you're still, you know, when you're really just starting to, um, you know, find out the treatment options and what you need to do and things like that. Um, there are, again, a variety of resources out there. Cancer Care has resources as well as other organizations for you to be able to um, write down the types of questions, but some of the questions you're going to ask are kind of divided into a few different sections. So questions to ask about your diagnosis. What is your specific diagnosis? Have they treated other patients that have that similar type of diagnosis? Um, where is the cancer located? What are your treatment options? And then what is the recommended treatment options based on the research that's out there currently? Um, how long does your treatment plan last? What will the side effects be? Can you get a second opinion or should you get a second opinion about your um, about your cancer? You know, second opinions are good. You know, you want to be able to make sure you're going to the most qualified person that has the most experience with your disease. And so, um, you know, asking for that, there's nothing wrong with asking for a second opinion. And many insurance companies will pay for that. You just have to double check with your insurance company before you do that. Um, who do you talk to about insurance questions? What's, time, what's the best time to call for that? If you have specific questions for um, your healthcare team about your treatment, again, what are the goals of your treatment? If your symptoms feel worse during treatment, what do you do about that? 
um, if you have questions during your treatment and your doctor's not available, who is it that you will talk to about that? Is there a nurse or a social worker or maybe a specialist that you can talk to just to be able um, to get the information that you need? And then should you consider participating in a clinical trial? And, um, you know, to see if you're eligible for clinical trials, there's a variety of sites you can go on for that. Clinicaltrials.gov is one of them. Sometimes your individual organizations um, may have uh, sites will, that will tell you clinical trials that are specific for your particular disease. Um, and you can discuss, you know, is this the time that you need to do that or, you know, do you need to exhaust other, some other options before you do that? Um, other questions, will you want to continue working while you're undergoing treatment? Are you able to do that? Should you avoid certain foods or certain diets? And then will this treatment affect your fertility? Some of those discussions need to happen early on, especially as fertility, because sometimes you want to um, think about that before you even start your treatments for that. When we talk about how a cancer diagnosis affects caregivers, families, partners, loved ones, Cancer really, again, is not an individual treatment. It really does affect your entire family. And so you want them to be able to support you in the best way that they can. And caring for somebody that has cancer, you know, as a caregiver, you're taking on a lot of new responsibilities. You may be worrying about the future. It can really, really tire people out and things like that. And I think the the thing that I've seen in the 35 years that I've been in oncology I think just having that open communication with your with your family and your loved ones and different things like that is the key to making sure that um, you will get the best you know support from your family members that you can. So again, expressing yourself, letting them know what are your wishes around certain things. You know, it's we like to we don't like to give up our autonomy when we're when we're caring. Um, excuse me, when we're receiving care and things like that. And sometimes that's the most difficult thing to give up. And so you just need to kind of set limits with the caregivers, let them know what you want to do versus what they can help with and things like that. Everybody wants to be helpful. Sometimes they just don't know the best way to help you. And so sometimes you need to help them with that. And as a caregiver, the same thing. If you're a caregiver that's on the line, you want to make sure that you're clear with the individual and make sure that you guys have a mutual understanding about the care that needs to be given um, for the particular patient. Uh, you want to use, again, try to use I statements versus you statements. Um, you, if you, as a caregiver, need a break, you need to make sure that you that you know that. It's, it's nice, if you can, to have multiple caregivers that can kind of take turns. Now, that's not always feasible for people. Sometimes you have one dedicated caregiver, but if you can have multiple or have family or friends that do things, we're going to have some other discussions in some future lectures about kind of caring for the caregiver and what can we do to help caregivers along and things like that. So I'll um, kind of wait for that for some of the other discussions. But just know that it really is a scary time for both of you and you just want to be there for each other to to be able to help each other during that time. If you need to have your caregiver talk to the healthcare team or if you need to talk to the healthcare team yourself, you want to make sure that you're clear with them. Um, if you're going to have a caregiver talking to the healthcare team, they're going to need to sign a uh, medical release form, which is required by HIPAA, um, just to be able to be able to even talk to the physicians or if you need them to get medical records for you and things like that, they're going to need to sign that form just so that you can have a release of medical information. You're going to have to sign the form 
for them, actually. Um, there's a variety of different resources that um, that can help you as uh, there's a company called the National, it's an organization, excuse me, called the National Caregiver Alliance, which was established to improve the quality of life for family caregivers and people that receive care. And that's actually a really uh, a good site so that if you yourself or if you have a family member, they actually have family caregiver navigators um, that will help locate support services state by state. Cancer Care also has a variety of um, resources with that. They have their social workers that can help you with a variety of things, and they'll talk about that um, a little bit more in a minute. And then the last topic I want to talk, or the last two topics I want to talk about, the first one is tips for advocating on your behalf. Again, we talked a little bit about that already, being an advocate. Best thing to do is educate yourself on your own diagnosis, and so there's a variety of tools out there to be able to help you do that. Really take advantage of whatever resources you can, and again, Cancer Care can also help you with that in terms of are there specific resources in your area um, around around things for that. Understanding your insurance policy is probably a key thing, and knowing what your insurance coverage is and what it doesn't cover is important as you will be getting your treatments and as you will be getting follow-up care and things like that. So you really want to be able to um, sit down with somebody and talk about, you know, what are some of the financial implications and, and things like that. Um, again, communicating with your team. We've talked about the asking questions, keeping a, a side effect journal. So if, for yourself, so I had a, a friend that had um, that had ovarian cancer, and she would come to the hospital, and she had all of her labs. She had she had everything, but she had everything in a big journal, and she would pull it out at every visit so that she could keep clear herself on what her side effects were and what her lab counts were, and you know all these different all these different things that she wanted to be able to keep track of herself. So it helps you to be able to figure out how long your side effects are lasting, um, how strong the side effect is, any information that you can give your team to help them be informed to help you is what you want to try to do. So whatever mechanism you're able to use to do that. Um, make the most of your medical appointments. Again, bringing somebody with to the appointments with you, um, making sure you understand before you leave the room in terms of what the goals are of the treatment or whatever you're doing. And again, always looking for a contact. If you have somebody that you can contact if you have any questions about that. And then my last topic is survivorship care plans. And so, um, um, Stu talked about this a little bit, but in 2006, the Institute of Medicine issued a report recommending that every cancer patient receive an individualized survivorship care plan that really helps you to, to have guidelines for monitoring and maintaining your own health. And so in response to that, there were several groups that developed care plans to help that. And so there are a variety of websites that you can go on. ASCO, which is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, has a very nice care plan that, um, you know, if you kind of scroll through it, it will help you to know the different types of thing, questions that you need to ask. Um, you know, the treatment summary is very important because anytime you've been diagnosed um, and treated with with medications or surgery or radiation for cancer, it's important to know what those treatments were so that as you go forward, you know, years down the road, other people will understand what those treatments were. So it's a, it's a tool that helps you to be able to... Um, you know, kind of capture that information so that you have it going forward. The Minnesota Alliance also has a tool 
you really want to make sure in your survivorship care plan that you're following your appointments as they're scheduled, um, making sure that you're hitting all of your important milestones. You know, there's always a there's always a, a, a fear of recurrence that patients may have, and it you know it, it doesn't matter which visit you're going back through, whether it's your first three months after surgery or whether it's you know three years out out of surgery or out of treatment and that kind of stuff. There's there's that fear there. So if you know if somebody does have that fear, you want to make sure that you're talking to your healthcare providers about that and. Um, you know, it's it's a matter of just gaining the resources that you need to be able to help you during that time with it. Um, saying goodbye to your oncologist again, there are, there are many solid tumors that, after a period of time, you may be potentially you know considered cured for that particular disease. There are other ones that you know are more chronic diseases that go over time, and so you know just being able to um, you know make those. Uh, talking to your physicians and being able to know how to, um, you know, end those communications, but really still keep that, you know, keep those memories in your mind is important for that also. And so um, I think that the survivorship care plan, the different ones that are out there are very valuable tools to be able to help you to navigate through the system. And um, with that, I will turn it back over to Dr. Mesner. Thank you, Dr. Mesner. I'm happy oh, to entertain thanks. questions. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Kusek. That was really superb, as always, and uh, very comprehensive. And I know there'll be questions for you um, uh, during the Q&A. And our next speaker um, is Ms. Allison Erardi, and she's an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. And she'll be re she will be addressing, really, uh, self-care tips, Cancer Care's free psychosocial services and programs, and help in coping with the practical, social, and emotional challenges of cancer and the role of support groups. It's really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Arardi. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Um, as Dr. Messner mentioned, I am an oncology social worker at Cancer Care. As an oncology social worker, I provide support services to individuals and their loved ones who are impacted by a cancer diagnosis. I also stay abreast of changing trends and new knowledge in the field in order to provide the best care possible to those who use our services. We've been talking today about ways to manage your care, but it's also important to talk about practicing self-care. I'd like to speak about the importance of that and also what it can look like and about creating a support network as a part of that care and how cancer care can be a part of your network. Self-care looks different for all of us. We can practice self-care by simply taking care of ourselves, by getting enough rest at night, eating nutritious meals, engaging in physical activity after consulting with your medical team. We can also practice self-care by practicing breathing exercises to settle our minds and bodies, and of course, seeking support from family and friends. Further, Cancer Care is a leading national organization dedicated to providing free professional support services, including counseling, support groups, educational workshops like today, publications, and financial assistance to anyone affected by cancer. All of our services are provided by oncology social workers and world-leading cancer experts. At Cancer Care, our licensed oncology social workers are trained in how a cancer diagnosis can impact an individual and their loved ones and supports. A cancer diagnosis comes with many challenges, including financial demands, physical changes, social adjustment, 
and psychological impact in care. Our social workers are knowledgeable and can address the full scope of issues that cancer patients and their supports may face. Our short-term cancer-focused individual counseling and support groups are available to those diagnosed with cancer, as well as for loved ones or caregivers to address these concerns. They are offered um, in person generally in New York City and the New Jersey area, as well as over the telephone and online nationally. Working one-on-one with oncology social worker and individual counseling can offer space that's just yours to express your concerns. It also provides a space to help navigate difficult decision-making or communication with loved ones or your medical team, among other challenges that may arise. Your social worker can work with you to address your concerns in a way that is tailored to your individual needs. On the other hand, joining a support group offers the opportunity to speak with others who may be experiencing similar issues and navigating similar challenges. Additionally, it is also a space to both gather and provide support and obtain valuable information. We offer several support groups for cancer patients as well as caregivers. Our current groups um, include our telephone groups and then our online groups at this time. A cancer diagnosis can be overwhelming. Having support and guidance as well as establishing a support network of trusted people can help to relieve feelings of anxiety that may come up. Having this support can also reduce feelings of loneliness and can help to increase feelings of hope and empowerment. In addition to our short-term cancer-focused support services, we also provide additional services, including educational workshops, reading material, as well as limited financial support. If you're interested in learning more about our services, I encourage you to call Cancer Care's National Hopeline at 1-800-813-4673 to speak to one of our oncology social workers. There you can discuss what led you to cancer care and explore with one of our social workers the ways in which we can offer support. Our social workers can also provide resources to access clinical trials, financial assistance, and potential supports local to you. We really look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for your attention and the opportunity to be a part of this program today. I will now turn our program back to Dr. Messner. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Harati. That was really outstanding and wonderful and um, and really gives everyone a snapshot of really all the services that they can access from Cancer Care. And now we have time for questions, and I'm going to um, uh, ask um, Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to actually try to take as many of your questions as possible. And if we don't get your questions, I will then give you um, information about how to get your questions answered. So I'm going to uh, we're going to start with one of our online questions which we received, um, and um, so this is an interesting question. Um, give this one to uh, okay. Uh, this is for Dr. Fleischman to start with. How do I how to handle a situation where the adult children don't want their parent to know all the information about their disease? Probably not an uncommon thing to have happen, but if you could just make some general comments about that just to start. Sure. It is a rather common thing that I've seen over practice for many years. Um, There's a feeling that uh, adult children, often people who have rather good high accomplishments, but it could be for anybody, want to protect their um, parents from um, information that may be harmful with the fear that having 
knowing bad information or hard information will actually make them sick or make them really upset, and that may affect how long they live. Um, it's somehow somewhat magical thinking from what I've seen um, from the, in, the experience that I've had with older adults. Older adults think about illness all the time. They speak with their friends mm -hmm. and their family members uh, of the same age about illness all the time. And um, from my perspective, they may be amongst the best people to be able to cope with that information. So I, I think it is maybe more the fear than the actuality of making people uh, sick uh, by uh, sharing information from them that, with them that may be hard to take. Anyone else want to comment? Thank you so much, Dr. Fleisch. This is Georgie. Yes. I think that um, I, I agree with Dr. Fleischman on that. I think that, you know, it is it is hard for family members sometimes. I mean, we, we need to realize that, you know, the patient is the primary person that we're dealing with this, and, and you want to be honest and open with the patient about various things that are going on. You may have different ways of expressing things and maybe get some information from the family members about maybe the best way to to talk to family members about things or talk to the patient about things and stuff. But I think that, again, we have that obligation to the patient. And I agree with Dr. Fleischman that I think that um, that I do think that older individuals sometimes t even take the information better than maybe some of their adult children and, and different things like that because they are thinking about, you know, kind of what's going on. And I think they need you and want you to be honest with them about, um, you know, about what's going on with their treatment decisions. Thank you. And Ms. Rardi, you want to add a comment to that, that as well? Yeah, no, just, I mean, just really echoing um, the thoughts as well, that it is it is very common. I do um, speak with a lot of a lot of adult children that are experiencing that fear um, of sharing that diagnosis or that treatment plan with their with their older family members in fear, um, as Dr. Fleischman had said, maybe it'll make them sick, um, you know, extremely upset. And, you know, it is important to, you know, communicate the information um, if that is what you choose to do. Um, it, is a, it is a difficult decision to make whether or not you want to share that information, um, but also speaking with your medical team, social workers at the hospital, even to how to best communicate that might be helpful. Uh, we have another question from our online participants, um, and um, and this is actually, um, I'll start with you, Dr. Fleischman, again. What do you do when a patient refuses care that you believe will help them? Oh, back to the fact. <laughs> that happens happens quite often. Um, there's a lot of misinformation and misperception about cancer all over, um, and much of that resistance uh, can come when people don't actually have the fact. Again, in my experience over many years on the teams that I work with, much of the fear is that people will get really, really sick. Uh, during the treatment and that the treatment is harder on them than the illness. Um, that's a very debatable point, uh, but we do know that when treatment is successful, the um, symptoms and signs of the illness, of cancer illness get better. And uh, there are so many more things available today to keep people without um, getting bacterial infections and fungal infections and have not be anemic and breathe well and 
uh, in addition, some of the many preventive things that we're doing now, such as uh, something called prehab, which is rehab beforehand rather than after, and having good nutrition from the start of the treatment and having uh, the dentist look at your teeth before the start of the treatment to avoid um, infections in the mouth and all that. Uh, these are things that weren't done years ago when some of this misinformation got codified into street myth. So uh, a good discussion about the facts is really important. Excellent. And anyone else want to comment on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to. So I think I, I think that's all. I think that's all very important. I think it's also important to to talk to the person about why they may not want the treatment anymore and different things like that because they may have a a very valid reason for themselves. You know, maybe they've had many many treatments before and they have gotten to a point where they're ready for themselves to say, you know. I don't necessarily want to take a, a treatment at this point and different things like that. So I think you, you, we definitely need to give them the facts, but we also definitely need to be in tune to what is the reason for not wanting it. Because in the end, you know, it, it, it is ultimately the decision. And I think that there's, that there are patients out there. There's even staff, you know, you also have to, you also have to look at, are these, you know, the different side effects they're having and different things like that? Is it related to the treatment or is some of this related to the disease they have? And so you have to be able to kind of separate those things and be able to say, you know, is this actually effective for what's happening with them? But ultimately the patient has to has to really make the decision about what decision is best for them um, at that particular time. And you may not necessarily agree always with the decision that, that somebody will make, um, but you have to respect that person and know if they do have all the facts. Our job is to give them the facts and make sure that they're informed about the decision, and then they should be the ones making that decision for themselves. And this will be our last question. I'll ask Dr. Fleischman to start with it. It's the whole issue about vitamin C. Is it okay to take vitamin C? Does it boost the immune system when you're getting treatment? Oh, that's another good question. <laughs> um, and it's a difficult one to ask to answer really scientifically because uh, it, we need to remember that cancer is not one illness, and there are different kinds of cancer that affect different people in many different ways. My understanding of all this is that the uh, ability of vitamin C to uh, boost immunity is real but perhaps so much smaller than um, what anyone would need to fight cancer that uh, it may or may not make sense depending upon um, all the other medicines and treatments that people are taking and uh, how their kidneys and their livers uh, digest all the drugs and foods that they're getting. So my experience is that uh, maybe maybe we put too much more hope into it than it than actually exists. Uh, I know that can be debated, especially by people who make vitamin C products and like to sell them all to us. But from my experience, uh, the um, improvement is not enough to warrant uh, possible side effects. And could you comment on the side effect, the interaction with chemotherapy, that radiation? Yes. Well, uh, one of the things that uh, vitamin C is um, ascorbic acid, and ascorbic acid, as the name implies, makes our whole body a little more acidic. That can be very helpful for things like urinary tract infections where um, uh, acid in, in, in our bladder and acid urine 
can actually um, hold back some bacterial growth. It can't prevent it entirely. It can't treat it once it's there, but it may be very helpful. So often uh, we suggest things like uh, reasonably high doses of vitamin C or even cranberry extract um, to help uh, reduce the amount of bacterial growth in the bladder. But more than that, that because the whole body is more acid than uh, than would be if we didn't take it, that affects how we absorb all of our chemotherapy, how we digest our chemotherapy, and that may actually do more harm than good. Thank you. And Ms. Kusak, do you want to add anything as well? Or? No, I think I'm good. Okay. All right. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal, all of you. I'm just a terrific group. And I want to thank all of you as participants who really were listening and also participated in the call today and um, asked such great online questions. And I know there are many more questions in queue, so I just want to address that issue. So for those of you who still have questions, of course, we do want you to, of course, go to your healthcare team. They are, of course, always a good place to go with your questions because they know everything about you to some extent. They have all your records and things like that. But we also know that you like to also do research yourselves and do some additional uh, fact-finding yourself so you can ask more informed questions. So we do recommend, and you've been given some resources on the call today, and we, we all will, will be getting an evaluation after today's call. And in that evaluation, there will be uh, all the resources that were mentioned on today's program. So in addition to being an evaluation, it also gives you a lot of helpful tips that were mentioned during the program today. So that um, look forward to that as a, as a resource to all of you. Um, and you will see uh, organizations like the National Cancer Institute, the American Cancer Society, of course, Cancer Care. All that information will be there at your fingertips, and you'll be able to then use them. And most importantly, as we conclude today, um, and particularly in today's world, I don't want any of you to feel that you're alone. I do know that often people do feel alone. That's a normal thing to feel. But also tuck away somewhere and keep it in your mind's eye that, indeed, you always have access to organizations that are free to talk to someone. Um, and actually, and I would pick the credible organizations that we give you. And some of them actually are available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. American Cancer Society is one of them. And so you can actually, and you can call Cancer Care's um, call center as well, which is available during business hours, but our staff are amazing and phenomenal. And so I think that you basically... Um, and your healthcare team, and also ask your healthcare team, you know, when you can call them, what numbers you can use on weekends, evenings. So you actually feel connected when you have a question that is really troubling you. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today. We have many more programs coming up. And indeed, um, there is a, a, a next part to this one um, on April 22nd for caregivers, care coordination for your loved one living with cancer and other health problems. And also people themselves living with cancer may want to listen to that as well because it's the care coordination. Because people often don't only have cancer, they may have other health problems as well. So just to be aware of that call. And then there are many others coming up. And indeed, um, on April 20th, we are doing um, a COVID-19 program, um, updated guidelines for people living with uh, cancer, and so that would be also something to be stay tuned for, and you'll be getting information about that. So again, I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day, and please take care.